The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I hope you um, got the handouts um, for tonight's teaching. Um, We didn't finish the uh, teaching on the millennium last time, so this is the same handout from last time, uh, the one with the blue cover. Do you need one, Bert? There you go. Um, I also have some scripture texts that are possible verses on millennial life from the book of Isaiah. There are other passages that we could take. I just want to give you a flavor of the kind of verses that that uh, people uh, bring forward to say that this is probably a description of what life would look like in the millennium. Remember how I said uh, how difficult that was. We'll talk about that, but uh, these verses could easily be destri- describing, in many cases, also the eternal state, you know, in poetical language and prophetical language, etc. So that's possible, but I want you to consider these verses. So what I'd like to do is begin where we were last time in the handout, and I'm thinking that's on. Hmm, uh, page 12, um, so the strengths and weaknesses of amillennialism, all right? So we're on page 12. Now, just by way of review briefly, the millennium uh, is a thousand-year period described clearly one place and only one place in Scripture, that's in, in Revelation 20, in which the thousand years are mentioned multiple times there. Uh, I gave reasons why uh, I personally think that premillennialism is biblical, um, but I do believe that there are other possible views, good views. Postmillennialism has some adherence, uh, people that do love the Lord and love his word. Uh, that idea is that, uh, that the world uh, would have a greater and greater, uh, would be more and more influenced by the gospel um, until just uh, things just have gotten incredibly good as a result of the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's postmillennialism. Uh, amillennialism is the uh, idea that the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20 is uh, a figurative expression for a long period of time which has really worked out to be over 2,000 years or almost 2,000 years, I think, at this point since the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. It's the period that we know as the church age, the advance of the gospel. And uh, they have their own way of interpreting uh, Revelation 20. We'll talk about that in a moment. Premillennialism is the idea that Christ returns before, that's the word pre, the prefix pre, before the millennium. So he comes back and establishes a millennial reign or a thousand-year reign on earth. He will reign in Jerusalem and he will establish his righteous throne there. There will be all kinds of effects on the earth. There will be effects in nature, effects among the nations. The Jews will have a special uh, responsibility there and a special privilege among the nations. That's especially enhanced, that idea enhanced in dispensational premillennialism, which has such a strong division between the church. Division might not be the right word, but um, separate intentions and purposes between the church and Israel. Um, and so the, the millennium then very, very important in dispensational premillennialism, etc. So that's what it is. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, that's what the millennium is. Now, for myself, I'm on page 12 now, uh, amillennialism was very attractive and still is attractive in a lot of ways, and I'd like to talk about the strengths of amillennialism before I describe why it is I have personally at this point moved away from it. Even though I tell you many of my best uh, friends, uh, brothers, and sisters in Christ hold this view, and it is a reputable view depending on, you know, 
if you hold the other tenets of inerrancy and other things, and you're trying to be faithful to prophecy, etc., amillennialism actually can be an attractive choice. Uh, the strengths, uh, first of all, is just the simplicity. You don't really need many charts here. Um, the next thing that's going to happen, obviously there will be a tribulation and an antichrist and all that, but the next thing that happens is the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming of Christ, that's it. Everything happens at that point. You have the general resurrection, which I'm going to be teaching on tonight, God willing. You have the general resurrection. You have the judgment. You have heaven and hell established. You have the new, new, new heaven and new earth established. Everything's done. This eternal state. That's it. Um, and there's, there's nothing else that you need to be concerned about. You don't have to work through various uh, passages of Scripture trying to understand this detail or that detail. I think at that point you have to spiritualize certain passages, uh, but uh, that kind of thing is regularly done in the apostolic handling of Old Testament prophecy, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a simple model, friends. Uh, second coming of Christ and the establishment of the eternal state. New heaven, new earth. That's it. So there's an attractive simplicity. There is also, very appropriately, a focus on the eternal state. There's not really much to talk about with the millennium. It's going on now, so they believe. This is the millennium. This is the time when Satan is bound and is not able to deceive the nations, so they say. And the saints are resurrected spiritually, having come to faith in Christ. They have uh, come alive spiritually. They were dead in their transgressions and sins. They have been resurrected spiritually and reign together with Christ in a kind of a spiritual sense. And uh, in this way, the gospel advances uh, for the thousand years, thousand years being figurative. That's the, the approach they take to Revelation uh, 20. And so, therefore, they don't have a lot to say about the millennium, per se. Um, what they want to talk about is the eternal state, heaven, the new heaven, the new earth. I'm not saying that Randy Alcorn, in his book uh, uh, called Heaven, is amillennial. I actually don't know what his views are on the millennium. He just doesn't talk about the millennium hardly at all in his book in heaven. Which is, it makes sense because a book on heaven should talk about heaven and millennium and heaven are not the same thing. But uh, basically there should be a focus, a tremendous focus on the eternal state. We should be thinking about it a lot. And I told you before that one of the problems with premillennialism is an over-preoccupation with the millennium to the, to the uh, detriment of thinking about the new heaven and the new earth, which is going to be where we'll be forever. So my feeling is even if you are millennial, let's keep in, in perspective that even a thousand years as, as, is as nothing compared to the eternity that we're going to have in the eternal state. So it's, a, it's an important thing that God would do. It's, it's valuable to study it and understand it, but it's not eternity. It's just a thousand years. Isn't it funny to speak that way? Just a thousand years. But that's how we're going to look at a thousand years when we're in heaven, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. What's 1,000 years? You know, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So eternity, you know, we will, we will think like the Lord does. So with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So it's really not an, ex in, in an overwhelming period of time. All right, now, uh, another strength of amillennialism is, at one point, a, a moderate strength, is the explanation of the purpose of the binding of Satan coupled with Christ's statement of the same. Now, what we have in Revelation 20, 1 and 2, remember how I said there's two basic aspects of the millennium verses. Revelation 21 through 6, there are two aspects. Remember what they were? The binding of Satan and the resurrection of the saints to reign with Christ. Those are the two basic aspects of the teaching in Revelation 20. All the other words in those six uh, verses have to do with one of those things or the other. 
So the first issue is the binding of Satan. Remember what it says. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Uh, I should have kept going on the quote. Uh, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore is what it says. So the purpose of the binding is to keep him from deceiving the nations. All right, the amillennial interpretation is this is Christ. Christ is the angel, so to speak, coming down who binds the devil uh, to keep him from deceiving the nations. Um, this is Christ in his first coming. Now, this is very attractive when you actually look at Christ's own statements concerning his ministry of casting out demons. Do you remember what he said? Um, uh, he was driving out demons... And his opponents came and said, it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. He's driving out, out demons by the king of the demons, by Satan. It's a great big deception that's going on here. And Jesus has a multifaceted answer to that statement. The, the final aspect of it is the scariest of all. Um, and that is, you can't just say that. Those kinds of words are weighty and significant. And you're going to have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you've spoken, Matthew 12. We'll talk about that in the judgment day aspect. But it's in conjunction with their statement about how Jesus drives out demons by the, the prince of demons. All right? And so he says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. And a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're just speaking out of your heart. And your hatred of me is very significant. You're going to be condemned by it, frankly. That's where he teaches on the unforgivable sin. Basically, to ascribe the driving out of demons, which he's doing by the power of God, to, to ascribe that to Satan is about as infinitely far apart as you can get. The work of the Spirit and the work of Satan are infinitely far apart. And if you are just so off that you can't see what's going on, then there is no forgiveness for that sin. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is what he calls it. That's all in that passage in Matthew 12. Uh, the parallel passage in Mark 3, 3. And Jesus says this in Mark 3, uh, 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So Jesus there speaks of binding up or tying up the strong, strong man. And in context, this can be none other than the devil. Jesus tying up or binding the devil so that he can plunder him. Now, what is the nature of the plundering? Well, it's souls, it's people who are getting rescued. They're physically being delivered from the demon that's possessed them. But even more than that, Jesus is robbing uh, Satan of souls for eternity. We have, been, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that God loves. So that's a big rescue mission, right? And Satan is apparently powerless to stop it. What can Satan do to stop Jesus from rescuing you and me? He can't stop that. He's powerless in the face of Jesus' overwhelming force. And so Jesus can do whatever he wants with the strong man. And so, in other words, what he's saying is you have to deal with Satan in order to get this work done. And if if I, by the Spirit of God, am driving out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, he says. So this is the evidence of the advance of the kingdom, the binding of the strong man, so that uh, the souls can be rescued. So Jesus makes another statement in Matthew 16, 
verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus is going to build his church and, and Satan can't stop it. Death can't stop it. He's going to win. So there's a great triumphant declaration there of Jesus' power. All right, That's an advantage to amillennialism to a point. But we'll get to the... Uh, I, I don't think that that's what's going on in Revelation 20, however. As attractive as it is, and that was the number one attraction for me with amillennialism, that and the simplicity. In the end, it just doesn't work for me because it doesn't fit the passage well enough. Okay, uh, The unity of Jew and Gentile is attractive. You can uh, have that in amillennialism. You can also have it in premillennialism, so it's not definitely amillennialism that teaches that. And then the heavenly spiritual triumph of the saints, those are minor, minor attractions to amillennialism. All right, let's get to the weaknesses. All right, first of all, the poor handling of the seemingly chronological unfolding of events in Revelation 19 through 22. Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. Revelation 20, the thousand years. First half is the thousand years. Second half is the... Um, um, uh, the great white throne judgment, judgment day, and um, Satan thrown into hell, and death, and Hades thrown into, into, into the lake of fire, Satan thrown into the lake of fire, that's judgment day, and then Revelation 21 and 22, that's the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, that's, that's it, there's a beautiful chronological unfolding. Um, the amillennial view is that you have the second coming of Christ, clearly depicted, then you definitely have judgment day, clearly depicted, Right, And then you have heaven clearly depicted. No, a millennialist denies that. But in the middle of that, you go back in time to the church age and talk about the advance of the gospel for a thousand years, really two thousand years. It doesn't fit. It just doesn't handle the, the chronological unfolding very well. All right? Um, poor explanation of the details of the binding of Satan compared with, this obvious, with his obvious freedom in the New Testament. What am I talking about there? Well, is Satan bound like he is in Revelation 20? Is he bound now? Because remember, he's bound for the whole thousand years, right? It's not just while Jesus was on earth while he's doing an exorcism. He's bound for the whole millennium so that he can't deceive the nations. Look what it says, Revelation uh, 20, uh, 2 and 3. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. All right, so you have a chain, you have a binding, so to speak. You have uh, an abyss. The, the, the Greek prefix a means not or negation, and, and abuso basically literally means no bottom, bottomless pit, falling for a thousand years, I guess. It's just a bottomless pit, a pit of darkness. And then um, it, it says it's locked and sealed over him. So he's falling in this bottomless abyss, this, this bottomless pit, and the, the roof of it is locked and sealed. And why? To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. Well, how do you compare that with, for example, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9? Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. How do you put those two together? I say that, they're, that they can't go together. If Satan is bound up by Jesus and thrown into a bottomless pit and the, the doorway to it is locked and sealed for a thousand years, he's not prowling around anywhere. He's not free to do anything. But there seems to be in 1 Peter 5, definitely in the church age, Freedom for Satan to go around and do all kinds of things. 
And it's not just that. How about also this? 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. Well, why is that passage important? Well, that's the very thing that he's not allowed to do in Revelation 20. Do you see that? Revelation 20, he's kept from deceiving the nations. But in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age is blinding their eyes so they can't see Christ. It's the very thing that he's not allowed to do, you see? And that's going on now. So Satan, the God of this age, is in the process of deceiving people about Christ. The gospel is God's answer to the deception, you see. We basically are arguing with Satan over souls. We are taking every thought captive. We are destroying arguments and presuppositions where it's a mental battle over people's minds with the gospel so that they are converted and transformed. Now, the power of God is in that, the new birth is in that, but it's that's how we're, we're doing our work, and we're battling with Satan over souls. He doesn't seem in, in these verses to be locked and bound and sealed for a thousand years. He seems to have a great deal of freedom and influence. Same thing with Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What is the significance? The present tense. He is now at work in them. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was locked up in an abyss and unable to do anything. No, no. He's now at work in people who are disobedient, making them disobedient too. It just doesn't fit, friends. It just doesn't. Satan has a lot of freedom, doesn't he? He's, he's around. We have to deal with him. We have to be aware. He says, Paul says we're not unaware of his schemes. He's actually doing all kinds of stuff. And we need to be aware and we need to fight him in a spiritual way. Not by, you know, taking authority over the devil and all these kind of things that you hear. That is exactly spoken against in Second Peter and in Jude. You know, we don't bring reviling accusations. Even even the archangel Michael didn't do that, but he just did his business and got out of there. We don't stand there and debate and take on Satan with the authority. We don't do any of that. But we are aware of what he's doing. We're mindful of him. We protect ourselves with spiritual armor against him. He's active. He's aware. He's involved. And we need to be aware too. So to me, I think that's a very strong argument against amillennialism. It just doesn't fit Revelation 20. And so therefore, I don't think it's attractive. All right? Poor handling of the resurrection in Revelation 20, like the quote above, to spiritualize the first resurrection is to stretch language to the breaking point. Uh, they do not make adequate distinction between the first and second resurrections in this key passage. So that's, those are three good reasons, I think. The, the chronological order, Revelation 19 through 22, the binding of Satan and his apparent freedom in the New Testament, and then um, the issue of this resurrection, how the word itself... Um, they came to life is used in two different ways. They came to life spiritually in the first half of the verse. They came to life physically in the second half of the verse. The, you know, that doesn't really fit. All right, now uh, comparing the millennium and the eternal state. Uh, how are they similar and how are they different? All right, well, there are some similarities. In both the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will reign physically, visibly on earth. The earth will be renewed in a greatly improved state, at least, if not perfect. Okay, why, why is that similar? Because what language can we use now to speak of that greatly improved state? Perfected kind of language. You know, um, beauty and flourishing and fruitfulness and peace and all of those, that kind of language could either be millennial really good or new heaven and new earth, new earth perfect. The language could go either way and so therefore it's very similar uh, type of language. Um, nations will exist and do productive work. The fruit of their labor will be brought to the throne of Christ in a stream of commerce. 
That's going to happen, I believe, in the millennium, and I think it's going to happen in the new heaven and new earth as well. Remember, as I preached, heaven is not a new heaven and new earth, not boring place where nothing's going on. It's not a static place. But it says in, in, in Revelation 21, I think it is, New Jerusalem's gates are going to stand open uh, day and night, it says, so that the wealth of the kingdoms can be brought into it. So and that's in the eternal state. So there's a lot of similarity there. There will be peace on earth between nations, of course. Uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Jews will be in position of uh, favor and influence uh, in both. Um, Note, because of these and other similarities, it is very difficult to zero in on Old Testament prophecies that are clearly talking about millennial life and not life in the new heavens and new earth. Note number two, as I've already said, I've noticed a tendency among premillennials to downplay the eternal state and talk a great deal about millennialism. I've made that point. Let's just move on. What are the differences uh, between uh, the millennium and the eternal state? Well, the millennium is for a thousand years. The eternal state is what? Eternal. Well, there you go. That's a big difference. All right. One of them ends and the other one doesn't. All right. So, by the way, that's another point, I, a problem I have with some approaches to premillennialism. Every time they see the word kingdom, they think millennium. And I actually think that's wrong. Because doesn't it say in Daniel 4, for example, that his kingdom will never end? It's not his kingdom will last for a thousand years. It's that his kingdom will never end. So, his kingdom is going on into eternity. The, the millennium is part of it, but it's going to go on forever. So don't just equate kingdom and millennium the way that some premillennialists tend to. They're, they're, they're related but different. All right, there will be unregenerate people in the millennial kingdom. That's how they rebel at the end. There will be only glorified people in the eternal state. Millennial people will have babies who grow up. Millennial people will sin. Millennial people will grow old and die. By the way, these are differences. New heaven, new earth people will do none of those things. <laughs> All right? We will not have babies and grow up. We will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Okay? Um, we will not sin, and neither will we grow old, and we will certainly not die. Okay? So that's, that's different. The destruction of the elements by fire and the creation of new heaven and new earth marks the end of the physical existence we now know, this present planet, this earth. Now, some people speak of the resurrection of the earth. I tend to think that that's a good way to look at it. There is a mysterious continuity between your present body and your resurrection body. The body that is sown, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. So there's a continuity like a seed and a plant. There's a continuity. So there is, I think, with the earth, a continuity between the earth the present earth and the new earth. So I like to think of the resurrection of the earth. That uh, Some people say, well, that doesn't fit into him rolling up like a garment and throwing it away or you know, the elements melting in the fire. All I know is that there are a number of verses that talk about the renewal of all things and, and those, so those verses are problematic the other way. So the best way I can make is that the renewal is going to be so radical that it really is a new earth, but yet there's a continuity between this present earth. We're not going to be living in some weird sci-fi kind of planet existence that we have no recognition of what it could even be. I think it's going to seem familiar to us. It's going to seem, yes, this is it, but it's going to be perfect. So that's it. It's not going to be some radically new. So we'll get to new heaven, new earth. But um, in 2 Peter 3, it says the uh, heavens will disappear with a roar. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Notice that, by the way. It doesn't say that they'll disappear or go away, but they'll be laid bare. Basically, like erasing the, 
the whiteboard, you know, and then he's going to draw something more beautiful on it. So that's, I think, the way I tend to think of it is the earth's going to continue to be totally replenished and renewed in a beautiful way. All right. The millennium, not so. That hasn't happened yet. So basically, Jesus is going to have an awful lot of new construction work to do after the tribulation. I mean, if you read the book of Revelation, see all the destruction there is, a third of all the living creatures in the ocean, you know, died and, and all these earthquakes and these things falling from the heavens and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Jesus is just going to have a lot of cleanup to do and a lot of building to do for the millennium. Now, that's a question for me how that works, but he is capable of doing it, is he not? I mean, he could do it in a day if he wanted to. But I think he's going to involve us in that and clean up and restoration and all that. That's the speculation about the millennium. But in the new heaven, new earth, that's just the hand of Almighty God. He's just going to be making a new place for us to live. Beautiful. In the eternal state, uh, the creation will be fully liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's Romans 8. Uh, The millennium sees a natural world only partially restored from sin. So, ongoing questions I have. I've already asked them, uh, but I'll say some more. Will the resurrected saints living in the millennium have fully glorified bodies? Question. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, these are my questions. If you come uh, and say, I have an answer to question number four or something like that, I would love to hear it. Um, if every believer is resurrected at the coming of Christ and receives a glorified body, where do the children come from for the millennium? Is that uh, from the surviving non-Christians, the ones that weren't destroyed at Armageddon? Uh, you know, obviously that's a, a, qu- a question. That leads to question three. Do some non-believers survive the second coming? Um, is it just the army that gets wiped out there? But the people who didn't fight in the army, they still survive, and those are the ones that are going to populate um, the millennium. What will life li- uh, be like with glorified and unglorified people living side by side, if in fact that's what's going to happen? How will Christ repair all the damage done to the earth? We just mentioned that a moment ago. So um, those are just some questions I have. You may have even more questions, which, you know, which kind of frustrate me, of course. I teach these things so you have fewer questions, not more. But maybe you have to go through a great escalation of questions and then have them answered uh, little by little. Sometimes that's the way it is. It's what you call blissful ignorance. You never realized there were so many verses you had to harmonize. And so you've, you're, you've gone from blissful ignorance to now moderate confusion. And as you continue to study, you'll come into greater and greater clarity and you can work on that the rest of your life. So I gave you a sheet uh, that talked about possible verses on millennial life from the book of Isaiah. Why only possible? Because like I told you, there's a problem uh, with these verses in the prophetic language. Are we talking about the advance of the gospel now on earth? Are we talking about life in the millennium? Or are we talking about life in the new heaven and the new earth? These are wonderful verses, all of them. But they could be, there's, there's a claim of, of each one. Uh, for example, look at uh, Isaiah 2. 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. Um... They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, I mean, those verses uh, could be talking about the millennium. There are aspects of those verses that might be talking about simply the gospel advance um, in some way. You could, you could say that. Uh, for me, I think they are talking about the millennium uh, because of this idea of nations not taking up sword uh, for, uh, uh, not taking up sword against nation, nor will they train for war 
um, any anymore. And the streaming of the nations also is attractive for the millennium. So those are some verses, but you can see why there's a challenge. Uh, Isaiah 4 talks about a canopy of glory over Jerusalem and the Lord cleansing Jerusalem from its bloodstains and its filth and its sin. Um, Isaiah 11, which I preached on recently, is the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord is resting on him, and he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. This is Jesus reigning. And then you have that famous verse, um, verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and the young, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the Infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the, cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all, all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. I really do think that that's talking about the millennium because of the presence of infants and um, young children. Uh, which I, th- I have a hard time placing in the new, the new heaven, new earth. Um, there are also a number of verses in Isaiah that talk about the replenishment of the desert. Uh, it says the desert, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, the desert and the parched land will be glad and the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. There are just so many details in there that I have a hard time just spiritualizing it. I know that uh, John the Baptist preached, uh, you know, voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Um, but this is talking about a replenishment of the desert and making it bloom. And there's not just one verse. There's actually a number of verses, especially in the, in the 40s, in Isaiah 40s, that talk about this. Another example, well, I, I cut it out so it fit on one sheet, but, um, you know, how the Lord makes streams flow in the wilderness, uh, etc. And so uh, the, the, the flowering of the desert fits the millennium better than the new heaven and new earth. Because why would you have a desert in the new heaven and the new earth? If you're going to make it flower, make it flower from the start. But if you're going to replenish the earth and make it fresh, that seems to fit the millennium better. You see what I'm saying? Uh, then there's Isaiah 60, this long chapter. I'll tell you, there's just so many things in here. This is the glory of Zion. And uh, I'll just uh, read part of this, and then you'll get a sense of, of this as the millennial life. This is speaking of Zion, really, perhaps of Jerusalem. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Uh, behold, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth and the seas we brought to you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Keter's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. Uh, they will be accepted as uh, offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to the nest? Surely the islands look to me. And in the lead of the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal uh, procession. Look at verse 12 though. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary and I'll glorify the place of my feet. 
The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I'll make you the everlasting pride and joy of all nations. You know, this, this language here seems to fit the millennium better than the new heaven and the new earth, just in my opinion. So that's why I just call them possible verses that might be talking about millennial life. Any questions about the millennium before we move on? All right, did you all get the handout, uh, General Resurrection and Judgment Day? I was working on this until 6.20, and uh, our technology is not sufficient to crank out. Jack, did you get all those? Okay, they're up there. All right, did you all get one? Yes? Nobody got one. All right, who got them? Who doesn't have one? Raise your hand if you don't. All right, that's a good... Could I have a couple of servant-minded folks that would be willing to hand out this handout, General Resurrection and Judgment Day, to those who keep their hands up raised so that we know... Uh, that you need them. Where are they, Jack? Over here? Yes, All right, over on this pew. All right. All right, now we move to the next topic, and that is the topic of the general resurrection. What do I mean by general resurrection? Well, it's called the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Okay, Re- resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. All right, got some in here, middle pews. Good, thank you. All right, the doctrine stated, at the end of the world, God will raise all dead people from their graves, both the righteous and the wicked, and all people will spend eternity in physical bodies uh, that bear some continuity to the body in which they lived on earth. Now, we spend a lot of time thinking about our resurrection, and well, we should. Um, Most of the verses that talk about resurrection that are not referring to Christ's resurrection are speaking of the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection body and the glorification that comes with it and all that. And so we will talk about that more when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth. So I'll touch on it briefly uh, tonight. But the, the added concept here is that the wicked are going to be resurrected in some sense too. They're going to get bodies too. And the Bible teaches that. It's not something that's very well developed in the Bible. We don't have a lot of information about the resurrection bodies of the wicked. But it is a biblical doctrine, okay? What, are the, what is the evidence of the resurrection just in general, the general resurrection? Well, first, it's implied in the statement to Moses. In Exodus 3, 6, uh, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, Jesus uh, had a commentary on this uh, passage, the perfect commentary, because he gave it. Mark 12, 26 and 27. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. Now, this is a very interesting passage here. It takes a lot of meditation to try to draw out all of its truths. Okay? What Jesus is saying is he's using this statement made by the angel of the Lord, by, by Christ, I believe, in the burning bush. He's making this statement to prove the resurrection. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read this passage? You're saying, well, what? yeah, I've read it. What does it have to do with resurrection? Well, it's a very deep thought. First of all, it has to do with the tense of the verb. I am the God of Abraham. Okay, what does that mean? It means Abraham's still conscious somewhere. The Sadducees basically said life is all you get here on earth. When you die, you're done. You're finished, like an atheist would, you know, that kind of thing. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought the grave was it. You're finished. And so Jesus is dealing at least with the first uh, issue, and that is life after death. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are presently having a relationship with God. He is their God now. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. But it goes even deeper than that. Jesus is using that to prove resurrection. 
Now, this is where it might elude you. You say, well, how does that prove resurrection? Well, it, it just goes back to God's original intent in creation. He means for us to have bodies. If he didn't mean for us to have bodies, he wouldn't have given them to us, right? For us not to be resurrected in the body means he made, some, in some sense, a mistake. Sin won over the body. So it's almost like, like you saved some of your family through the fire, but not all of them. And so we got some of humanity saved. I'm not talking about individuals now. I'm talking about an individual person. We saved the soul, but we couldn't do anything for the body. And in the end, sin beat us on the body. But the soul got saved. Jesus will have none of it. He wants to save the person. <laughs> he wants to save Abraham. He's Abraham's God. And Abraham had a body. And he wants to give him a body for all eternity. You see what I'm saying? And so it wouldn't be salvation if Abraham doesn't end up with a body. That's a very deep concept there. But Jesus is using this statement in the flames of the burning bush to prove resurrection. He is Abraham's God, and therefore he's going to give Abraham a body someday. All right, very, very deep. Uh, there are clearer statements on bodily resurrection from the dead, though. There's the, the uh, picture given by Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. You remember that? I'm not going to read through the passage, but there in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel's taken to a, to a field, a uh, valley, and there's, it's filled with dry bones, very dry. And uh, you know, the, the Lord says, Son of man... Uh, can these bones live again? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, I know that they represent Israel and Judah. I know that. I know there's representational language here. And this isn't directly talking about the resurrection, but this is about what it looks like. And it's so specific. You remember what happens. You know, he asks them, can they live again? And Ezekiel is very cagey and intelligent, saying, in effect, you know, Lord. <laughs> Why are you asking me? You know, in effect, he's saying, I don't know. It sure looks like they're dead. Like there's no hope for them. But he says prophesy to them. And as he prophesies, there, there's this rattling sound. And the bones assemble. They come together. And then the flesh comes on them. And sinews and muscle and all. It must have been really interesting to watch if you're into anatomy. And maybe gross if you're not. But there it is. You're, you're seeing the body assembled right before you. And it's a vast army. It's not just one or two. It's a vast army. And then he says, prophesy to the wind or breath. Uh, the Hebrew word's the same either way. And the breath comes into them and they become living again. And that's exactly how God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. That, my friends, is a resurrection. Very clearly depicted by Ezekiel. So that's an indication. Um, well, let's do better than indications. How about a prophecy? How about a direct prophecy? He gives it to Daniel. Daniel 12 and verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, there it is, friends. I don't know how much plainer you can get it. And that's in an Old Testament book. It's amazing the things you hear all the time. The idea of the immortality of the soul, so they put it. The idea of the immortality of the soul is a Greek concept that's never found in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures. It was imported in the New Testament. It's a matter of philosophical presuppositions by Aristotle and Plato and all that, and it crept into the New Testament. Forget it. It's not true. God had always intended to resurrect the dead. And there are clear indications in the Old Testament he intended to do that. But here's one clear verse. 
All right? Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. What does that mean? To sleep in the dust of the earth. That means to be dead, friends. And what's going to happen to them? They're going to, they're going to awake. They're going to come to life. Some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. That is the general resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Okay? Isaiah makes a prophecy. Isaiah 26, 19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. This, this is why I just laugh when I hear these statements. Oh, it's a Greek concept, the immortality of the soul. It can never... I'm thinking, what do you do with Isaiah 26, 19? That seems like resurrection to me. The earth will give birth to her dead. You who sleep in the dust, wake up, come to life. That's resurrection. And then Job's famous statement, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another, how my heart yearns within me. So, uh, multiple verses there. New Testament, of course, has far more statements about the resurrection. Far more. I mean, more than I can put here. And I don't think it's uh, helpful to give you every verse. Uh, But Jesus teaches, and let's go right to the issue of the general resurrection, which by that we mean the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus said this in John 5, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Rise to be condemned. It's hard to picture that. Where were they before they rose? You know? Are they in some kind of place of torment now? And that's where you have the whole rich man and Lazarus story um, or account or statement by Jesus. Um, If so, you know, is God bringing them out of that torment? They're going to judgment. They get a body and then they get thrown in the lake of fire. But I think that's precisely what does happen. And you might think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make sense, actually, the more you think about it. Remember I said, God thinks of us, human beings, as body and soul together. We we have a, a... a soul, and we have a body. And when those are separated, there's a sense of unnaturalness to it. Death itself being, in some sense, unnatural. The body's coming back, and so he's going to do that. But whatever, whether my analysis of that's true or not, here's the statement. All who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Not some, all of them. And those who have done, done uh, good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By the way, the first half of the verse we already noted, I think, is speaking of a spiritual resurrection. All right? The dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear are living. And Jesus himself used that language. Remember when the man said, first, uh, let me go and bury my father. Remember that? And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So there have to be living dead who can do burials. (laughs) And that's not some weird zombie movie. That's not what Jesus is referring to there. Let the zombies, the night of the living dead, when they come out to bury all the other dead. That's got nothing to do, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You follow me. That's what he's talking about. Or in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So that's a a spiritual resurrection, but the second half, definitely. You're in your graves. You're going to hear his voice and come out. By the way, you'll have no choice in that matter. All right? Jesus commands and out they come. Everybody. So he has that kind of power. Uh, Jesus makes a promise. Uh, Luke 14, 13 and 14. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot uh, repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So there is something called the resurrection of the righteous. You'll be repaid then. 
Uh, by the way, that's an important verse for teaching that there should be a net earthly deficit concerning your good works. You should be doing some things that make no sense whatsoever if there is no resurrection. Invest in eternity. Do some things that make no sense except if there is a resurrection. That's, that's what you do. That's why it says invite people who can't pay you back and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. All right, John 6, 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, notice, notice the personal aspect of it. I will raise him up. Jesus is the one he's going to reach out and raise him up. Now I know and when, I, when I get to the doctrinal part here, I'm going to say that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all active in resurrection. But here it's very clear, Jesus involved in the resurrection. He will call us out of the grave. We will hear his voice and come out. Okay? John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus is saying it again and again. He is promising to raise us up. That's a promise he's made. All right? Um, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. By the way, I do many funerals throughout, uh, throughout uh, the year. And I sometimes struggle with the fact that I'm going again and again to the same passages for the same promises until the Lord convicted me of that struggle. I said, what are you struggling for? How many different versions of the promise do you need? Give the same promises. They're still true. And they'll always be true. So speak the promises of the resurrection at the funeral. Don't worry about whether the same people are hearing the same promises. You need to hear them. I do too. Let's hear them again and again. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I've said before, one part of my ministry here is to help all of you die well. To die happily. To die with faith and confidence and courage. And not die as an unbeliever. All right? To get you ready for that day because it's coming. And so there should be joy. If you know you're laying on on a bed in the ICU and you just know the Lord has made it clear to you and medically and you're going to die, rejoice and be glad. And give testimony of that to these unsaved doctors and nurses that come in and fuss over your dying body. Okay? <laughs> Don't worry about it. The resurrection of the righteous is coming and, God, and Jesus will do a much better job than you can do, so just let it be. <laughs> well, if there's still something that can be done for you, let them do it. But anyway, moving on. So... You get into trouble when you get off the sheet. That's the whole problem here. Anyway, um, this is exemplified at Jesus' death. This is one of the more unfamiliar verses, but it's true. When Jesus died, people rose from the dead that day. It's an interesting thing. I've often wondered about that. Matthew 27, 52, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many people. Ooh. <laughs> These are like long-dead holy people coming back and saying, here I am. I mean, that must have been an incredible encounter. I don't know if they went back to family members who had been missing them for the last seven or eight years or what happened there, but my goodness, but there's a resurrection. And I think Jesus, that, that you know, and I believe there it's not a resurrection fully. I think it's a resuscitation of the Lazarus style. In other words, I don't think that they had resurrection bodies. I think they came to life again, like, like uh, um, Jairus' daughter, you know, or Lazarus, etc. But at any rate, there's that connection. Paul teaches here in, uh, on, on trial before Felix in Acts 24, 15 and 16. I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That's the plain statement there of the general resurrection. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. The most extended teaching, of course, on the resurrection of the righteous 
is 1 Corinthians 15. As far as I can read, there is no statement in that chapter on the resurrection of the wicked. It's not a denial of it. It's just that's not the purpose of the chapter. So it shouldn't surprise you that there are far more details and more insights about the resurrection of the righteous than there are about the resurrection of the wicked. I do not think that it's the same thing. For example, I think we're going to look a lot better than they will. I'm not being facetious. I just think we will be attractive, beautiful to look at, appealing. I think our bodies will be perfect, just the way God meant. I think their bodies are going to be destroyed for eternity. And so there's not going to be anything to look at. You might say, how can they be destroyed for eternity? God is going to sustain them. The, the worm is not going to die. And the fire is not going to be quenched. That's the horror of hell. God is supernaturally keeping them alive while they are like forever dying. That seems to be what's going on there. That's what I think it means when it says the worm does not die. Um, it's a terrible thing. But uh, the details of the resurrection are clearest in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in the first half of his argument there, Paul is proving that the resurrection of Christ from the dead means there will be a resurrection of all his believers. That's what he's getting at. 1 Corinthians 15, 12, and 13. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So clearly he's dealing with two different things. Christ's resurrection as a proof that there is a general resurrection of the dead. That's what he's saying there. So there is a resurrection. You will be raised, you who have faith in Christ, because Jesus was raised. That's the way he's arguing there. And Paul describes the resurrection body. I love these verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. I love those verses. You really ought to meditate on them. You want to understand your future in the body. Meditate on these verses, all right? And understand the it uh, refers to the body. It is sown. It is raised. So it's talking about the body, right? Now look what's said about it in, 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 the, in the burial. The body that is sown is perishable. So it's like perishable meat. It's going to decay. You remember the statement. There will be a bad odor. He's already been there four days. Well, that's reasonable. Because the body decays, you know, microbes and worms and all that destroy it. It's really disgusting. But it's raised imperishable. Meditate on that word. It cannot perish. There's no death in it at all. It's hard for us to fathom because our cells are dying all the time. I've been told by dentists that's why you have a bad taste in your mouth when you wake up in the morning because dead cells are sloughing off and, and that's what you taste. There's going to be none of that. In the, in the, with the resurrection body. No perishing at all. No perishing. Dentists are out of work. Jim Aker, I've talked to him, he's fine with that. He's excited about that. All right? No need for, for drilling, no, no decay, nothing. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. That is true. And I meditate on that. Our death, our bodily death, is a judgment from God on the human race. Never forget that. It shouldn't surprise you that there are some very undignified aspects of physically dying. Some repulsive aspects. It's hard to die. It's a trial, and it's, it's, it's a dishonor to us. It's, you're not at your best. <laughs> you're not looking your best. It's a terrible time, actually. But we understand what's happening there, and so there's a you know, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I think that's what's happening there. But, but, but that's, that's the old. It's sown in dishonor. It, the body, is raised in glory. It's not raised to see glory. 
It's not raised so that we'll be surrounded with glory. It's raised so that we will be glorious ourselves. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Our bodies are going to be glorious. We're going to shine radiantly. That's powerful. Uh, It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, it's not just that God exerts power to raise us. That is true, but that's not what it says. It is raised with power endued in it. Because that's the only way the couplet works. It had weakness, then it will have power. You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't mean Superman kind of powers. X-ray vision, able to leap buildings in a, in a single bound and all of that. I don't have any scriptural indication that that's the case. Just the body perfect the way God intended, but glorified. All right. So I thought about that. I, it means there'll be no fatigue at all. No fatigue. So you'll be equally energetic all the time, no matter what you do. I've been, I've been reading about the Olympics, getting ready for the Olympics. You know, Michael Phelps, he's going for nine gold medals. Do you know how many, like, heats and races? And He's got, he's going to be swimming the equivalent of, like, I don't know. It's like running a marathon every day for, like, ten straight days. That's what he's going to do. That boy's going to be tired, all right? But I tell you this. If I had my resurrection body, I'd beat him in every race. I just have to learn the strokes. But if I can learn the strokes, man, I would beat him and every swimmer in the pool, just as long as none of them have their resurrection bodies. All right, just me. All right, that's my sports fantasy. All right? I've thought about the Tour de France. I'd win, definitely. I'm going up the Alpe d'Huez or, or whatever any of these Alps, and man, I'm like, come on, guys, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on, come on, keep up. You know, limitless energy. No fatigue at all. Ready to go the next day. I said, why do you need to sleep? Let's keep the race going. 3,000 miles, let's get it over. Be done in four days. All right? Maybe less. All right. I don't think that this is too much to make of what I'm saying when I say it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. No pain at all. Wow. So that's where I say nine gold medals in swimming events, marathon, no problem. It would be awesome. I would just, my, my mind's just going gaga. This is going to be... Oh boy, exciting. And it is sown a natural body, it is raised. Here's the big mystery. What is this? A spiritual body. Do you understand that? Because I don't. <laughs> That's where Jesus is walking through walls. That's where, I mean, and I know Wayne Grudem and others question whether that's the case. I, I think, how else does he get out of the tomb? Seriously, that tomb was sealed with a stone, right? They moved the stone and he was already gone. In his resurrection body, how'd he get out? He had to go through that wall. He can do that. So it's powerful. Um, so that's the resurrection body. There are other teachings you can read. Um, just keep going. Uh, Revelation 20, I'm on page 4, uh, 12 and 13. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Now, there are physical problems, thoughts about it. What about 9-11 when those poor people got incinerated on the, on the jet, with the jet fuel, and, and there's just nothing left of their bodies? Well, that's not true that there's nothing left. I mean, but God is able to do this. He has that kind of power. He's able to bring people up from the sea. He's able to do that. He can do that. So... 
don't, don't let it trouble you. God will do this, and he'll do it for both the righteous and the wicked. It is a physical resurrection. I said the triune in nature, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all active. I'm, I want to skip that part. You can read the verses. It's a physical resurrection. Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I put those two verses together to say that what Jesus had, we will have. He has a body that you can touch and that has flesh and bones. We will have it too. That's all. Okay. Um, as we said, it's a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I've made that point. Resurrection body for the righteous, on page 5, is patterned after Christ's resurrection body. It is free from death and pain and is glorious and incorruptible. It's mysterious, a spiritual body. We've talked about that. For the wicked, it will mean a great increase in suffering. Isaiah 66, 24, They will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will the fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. I would not include that verse because it speaks of looking on dead bodies. That looks like corpses. Except that Jesus quotes this and, and ascribes it to hell. In uh, Mark 9, it says, If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. And, and uh, cut it, off. it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire uh, never goes out. And if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he's quoting Isaiah 66 there. Everyone will be salted with fire. I think Mark 9 is just very bodily. It's very physical. Now you'd say, okay, wait a minute. It's better for you to enter life with just one hand. Yeah, that's how you enter. That's not how you spend your life. You'll have a perfect resurrection body. You'll enter with problems. He'll fix those problems. But these folks have whole bodies and they're entering hell in them. And the worm isn't going to die. So I, the only thing I can make of that is like in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a very strong verse, isn't it? So both soul and body will be eternally destroyed. And you can say, I don't understand eternal destruction. God is able to do that. He's able to do that. And again, Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be, what does it say? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's physical, right? So there are bodies then in hell, in the lake of fire. All right, what is the significance of the doctrine of the general resurrection? First, God upholds the value of the physical body. That refutes the idea that the physical body is inherently sinful. We will spend eternity in bodies, so bodies can't be inherently evil. All right, so so much for Greek philosophy there. Uh, for the wicked, the eternal punishment of the body is just... It is righteous. Why? The body was a co-partner with the soul in sin. So it's reasonable for it to share the punishment. There are fleshly drives and desires. The body was part of it. You know, that's the very thing we struggle with now, isn't it, in our sanctification? What, what a wretched man I am. Who will what? Rescue me from this body of death. The body is making it hard for me to be righteous, Paul is saying. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I won't be disqualified. The body is somewhat suspect in the Christian life. Well, it's just reasonable for it to share in the punishment of the wicked. That's all the, the point that we're making there. The resurrection of the body for the righteous is the final step of the salvation process. It is the glorification spoken of in, in Romans 8. 
Uh, the re- uh, resurrection of the body for the righteous is the only true healing there is from disease and sin. Amen. Okay? When the, when the sick call the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and pray over them, God may choose to hear those prayers and raise the person up and restore whatever bodily part or, or issue was not functioning well so that they can continue and, and do more good works for him. Or he may not. But the real healing... You know, think of it this way. What does the verse say? Is any one of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to anoint him with oil and pray over him. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. What's the next thing it says? The Lord will raise him up. Well, there's your healing. Now, we don't tend to think that way in terms of prayer for the sick, do we? What's the raise up we want? Get out of the sick bed, right? And go about, you know... Well, I'm just telling you, there is no healing like the resurrection. <laughs> that is the perfect healing. You want healing? The resurrection is what you want. Now, again, there is value in, in bodily restoration so that we can keep serving God. But the real healing is the resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection is the only healing there is for diseases like AIDS. All right? So if you have a ministry to people with AIDS, you can promise them a healing. Okay? That's not to say that God couldn't miraculously heal them here in this world so that they could be completely bodily restored now as a testimony of his goodness. But you know what you would call that? You'd call it a sign. Signs and wonders. A sign of what? Of the future real healing. When not just AIDS, but every disease will be destroyed and you won't be sick at all ever again, you see. That's the real healing. So even if God does raise up that person with AIDS, the real healing is the resurrection. Therefore, the final statement here, the resurrection of the body for the righteous is the reality to which all of Jesus' healings were pointing. It's pointing ahead to the day when our bodies will be completely well. All right, friends, next time we'll talk about Judgment Day. There doesn't seem to be enough time tonight to go through these ten pages or nine pages in the negative five minutes we have left to us. Uh, so I think we should stop. So we'll get to the uh, judgment day next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things we've learned tonight. We thank you for the study that we've had all summer and future things. Thank you for the resurrection of the body. Uh, what a glorious thing it is to contemplate. And how terrifying, Lord, for the wicked who don't know you. And I pray that though they may not believe in that terror, that we would believe these threats and that the belief of those threats would cause us to be more diligent in prayer and in missions and in evangelism so that we can rescue the perishing from this dreadful um, judgment. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the example of your own bodily resurrection from the dead, and we look forward to our own through faith in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.